100 years ago today, Kevin Barry was executed in Mountjoy Prison. The young medical student and IRA volunteer was sentenced to hang for his role in an ambush that resulted in the deaths of three British soldiers. In song and story, he's forever the lad of 18 summers and stands today as one of Ireland's most famous martyrs. Tonight we'll hear about two new publications which investigate his life and the mythology surrounding him. To begin this evening, Colm Flynn spoke to Shifra O'Donovan, Barry's grandniece and the author of the book Yours Till Hell Freezes, a memoir of Kevin Barry. On the 20th of September 1920, Kevin Barry started his day by going to Mass and receiving Holy Communion. Kevin Barry was 18 years of age and a medical student in UCD. He was also a member of the IRA, having joined at age 15. He was a member of the H Company, under the command of Captain Seamus Cavanagh. Now, he didn't tell his family this, but he was going to take part in a raid, an ambush, on the Monk's Bakery. Uh, Seamus Cavanagh had said, you are not doing that. He said, you have an exam at two o'clock, you have to do your medical resets. You're not doing it, Kevin. And he said, I have to do this. I'm doing this. That's the voice of Shifra O'Donovan, author, historian, and Kevin Barry's great-niece. She grew up reading Kevin's letters and statements from the people who knew him best. She remembers a story told by Kevin's brother Michael about a conversation the brothers had while out in the Irish countryside. Michael Barry talks about Kevin just sitting back and going, Ireland, isn't it just beautiful? Is it a country worth living for and dying for? That was early July 1920 and he was dead by the 1st of November 1920. Although Kevin was due to reset a medical exam that afternoon, he insisted on taking part in this ambush. And so, after Mass, he headed for Bolton Street in the north of Dublin, where he joined a party of other IRA volunteers. Their order was to ambush a British army truck as it picked up a delivery of bread from a bakery and capture their weapons. They were meeting early in the morning to have another rerun over how things were going to go. Seamus Kavanagh was going to be hiding at Lenihan's pub with Frank Flood and numerous other volunteers were placed in other places and they were waiting for the arrival of the lorry full of Lancashire Fusilier soldiers um, to arrive by about 11 o'clock but they were about 20 minutes to half an hour late so it all went wrong. But when the British Army truck came, things didn't go to plan. A shot was fired, but it's unknown from where. Possibly it was a warning shot from an undercover soldier in the front. Kevin Barry and the rest of the IRA members opened fire. Barry's gun then jammed twice, and he dived under the vehicle for cover. The others fled, and he was left behind. Everything went silent after quite a lot of shooting and stuff. One 15-year-old British soldier lay dead and two others later died from their injuries. And then he looked around and he realised, oh, I'm on, I'm on my own here. And the, no whistle was blown, so there's nobody. What's going on? And a woman then, Mrs Garrett, shouted, there's a man under the lorry. And then he was found. Kevin Barry was arrested at the scene. Shifra grew up, as she puts it, in the shadow of her great-uncle Kevin Barry, 
His personal belongings were in the house. They would read his letters. She almost felt like he was there. You know, he was almost like a presence in the house. You had that walking stick. And you see this portrait, there's a portrait of him behind me. There was always the sense that he was like a sort of a character looming around. Like we had a lot of letters, a lot of copies of letters of Kevin Barry's um, to different friends and cousins and girlfriends. And, you know, not just at the time he was in prison, but before. So from these, you can really see what kind of a person Kevin Barry was extremely humorous, very witty, absolutely loved dancing, um, loved going to the theatre, loved going to the movies, loved betting, loved flirting, loved girls. Kevin had been arrested and interrogated. He gave his name and address but refused to give the names of those others who were involved in the ambush. Republicans demanded that he be recognised as a prisoner of war. However, the British government would not acknowledge a war and tried him for murder. He was tried in a military court and on October the 20th, he was charged with three counts of murder. And that evening, in his cell in Mountjoy Prison, he was told that he was sentenced to death by hanging. His execution date had been set for November the 1st. De Valera gave quite a fiery speech um, from New York, where he was uh, based at the time, fundraising for the Republic. A speech full of this kind of pathos, a speech that you'd never hear anything like it today. But a young boy, Kevin Barry, will be hanged. Tomorrow a boy, Kevin Barry, they will hang. But Ireland dries her tears over the graves of her martyred ones. They have fought their fight, and they shall reap the victory. In his last few days, Kevin Barry prepared to die, still always joking and light-hearted with those who came to visit him in prison. Another aspect to Kevin that I haven't spoken about yet is how religious he was, how spiritually he was. We can really see this as he came to the gallows, as he prepared for his own death. And the number of priests that he called, one from Belvedere, um, and then the chaplain in Mount Joy, and then other priests as well. There was faith in two things, though, you have to remember. There was definitely had a strong faith as a young Catholic, but he had faith in what he was doing and that that was going to propel the movement forwards. Canon John Waters was the chaplain priest in Mount Joy and was with Kevin when the executioner came into the room. This very tall, elegant man walked into the cell and he thought, I wonder is that the doctor? And then he took Kevin's arms and measured them, measured his wrists for the pinions. And so Canon Waters and Kevin understood that he was preparing him for his execution and that this was John Ellis, the executioner, and he'd arrived. The ropes had arrived a couple of days before. I mean, we can't imagine what it's like to face the gallows. On the day of his execution, a huge crowd gathered outside Mountjoy Prison to pray. In Mountjoy Jail, one Monday morning, high upon the gallows tree, Kevin Barry gave his young life for the cause of liberty. The prayers were the focus, really, of the whole thing. I believe there were guards who were standing um, around who were in tears. Um, he seemed to have moved um, a lot of people. Shoot me like an Irish soldier Do not hang me like a dog And it was a hanging that had no... There was no hiccup. It was very quick. 
The execution of Kevin Barry drew worldwide attention and condemnation, including from the US government and the Vatican. He did take a life, that is true, but he also gave his own life. He knew what he was heading into. He didn't choose to escape. He didn't choose and push for people to get him a reprieve. He chose not to give the names of his comrades. It's about the history of our country. It's about our heritage. I think that um, there's a slight amnesia in this country. That was a war fought by an army who were mandated by a democratic government who were voted democratically in. This is the foundation of our state. And if you choose and decide to not commemorate Kevin Barry, not commemorate, you know, Michael Collins, not commemorate anybody. So if you choose not to, you're really choosing to just turn a blind eye to those people who actually did put their lives on the line to make it possible for us to have a Republic of Ireland. For the cause he proudly cherished This sad parting had to be Then to this walked softly smiling That old Ireland might be beautiful rendition there of the song Kevin Barry by the West Clare singer-songwriter PJ Murray, ending that report from Colin Flynn on the young Republican's life, death and legacy. Colin was talking to Schaefer O'Donovan. Schaefer's book is called Yours Till Hell Freezes, a memoir of Kevin Barry, and it's published by Curragh Books. I'm joined now by Union O'Halpin, Professor of Contemporary Irish History at Trinity College Dublin. Union is also a close relative, a grandnephew of Kevin Barry, and in his new book, Kevin Barry, an Irish Rebel in Life and Death, he explores the lasting legacy of having a martyr in the family. Union, yours is a book about Kevin Barry, obviously, but it's also a book about memory and about family memory. And an important figure in the book is your maternal grandmother, Kathleen Barry Maloney, Kevin's older sister. Tell us a little bit about somebody who comes across uh, in the book as a very formidable woman indeed. Well, my grandmother, Kathy Arkitby Barry, uh, was certainly a very formidable woman. Uh, She was extremely able. Uh, One of the ironies of her, if you like, curating of Kevin's memory was that it meant that she'd rather downplay her own uh, really pretty extraordinary career in the independence movement, both during the War of Independence, but particularly uh, before and during and even after the Civil War. She was the General Secretary of the Prisoners' Dependence Fund for two years. She was in America with Markovich. She was in Australia with Nurse Kearns. She was very close to de Valera during the Civil War and acted as this kind of personal link with Liam Lynch. She was one of the last people to see Lynch and to talk about the prospects for the anti-treatyites in the Civil War. And really all of this I've discovered almost all after her death in any detail because really all she focused on in terms of passing on the story to her grandchildren, and my mum Mary was the only one of her family who had children, was Kevin. And she never mentioned, so far as I know, that her husband, my grandfather, Jim, that his brother Paddy had been killed in Tip in, in May 1921. She never mentioned that her father-in-law, PJ Maloney, was a member of the first and second Doyle, had been on hunger strike, I think, three times in two years, and uh, had his home and premises burnt down in November 1920. It was all about Kevin. It's amazing. So when she gives a Bureau of Military History statement, essentially she is somebody who should have been giving that statement very much in her own right and not just to talk about her brother. 
Oh, I think so very much. And she does say in a later letter to Oscar Trainer, who was then Minister for Defence, but who at the outbreak of the Civil War was her commanding officer in Dublin when she was uh, in the Hammam Hotel with the anti-treaty leadership just after the Four Courts fight. So she writes to Trainer, with whom she was also at war in various ways, but she writes in very personal terms saying how much she regretted that she hadn't written down uh, her own experiences in the Civil War uh, for the benefit of her grandchildren. She did reflect on the fact that Kevin was the person whose amazing story she had uh, solely curated, if you like, to the exclusion of the rest of her family, her, her extended family and so on, and what they experienced, what they suffered. This isn't to knock Kevin, but it is to say it shows you how selective in any family there's typically somebody who's regarded as the keeper of memory, but he or she very often is highly selective in what they remember and in who they remember. You write in your book that your grandmother's witness statement to the Bureau of Military History has become the template and in a way also a straitjacket for all subsequent writers. Do you think that witness statement hamstrings future historians when it comes to writing about Kevin Barry and um, could it in any way have hamstrung you? Well, well, I mean, I think you, any Bureau of Military History statement, like any memoir, or like any pension claim, you have to take them, not exactly with a dose of salt, but you have to say this is necessarily a partial view. And certainly my grandmother saw herself as laying down the word of God uh, on the Mount to Moses, uh, as far as she was concerned. But in fact, there's some minor inconsistencies with, with different accounts she gives at different times of aspects of Kevin's story. So even she wasn't uh, always perfectly consistent. But it is, it is an amazingly powerful statement. It's really well written. It's very coherent. It's very well put together. But it does, um, in places, it's hard to figure out how exactly the family, to what extent they might have felt some pressure from history upon them because of the way in which they acceded to Kevin's uh, desire not to be legally represented. But also in the case of Kevin, we know from his court-martial records that he actually did initially, for whatever reason, take part in the preliminaries to his court-martial. That's to say, listening to be witnesses giving a, a sworn depositions, and he actually questioned some of them. So there is that, why did he do that? There is some question there. There's also a lot of questions about brigade headquarters, if you like, and IRA headquarters as the consistency of their position, because they ordered Kevin to accept a legal defence and so on. And yet they, in effect, backed off on that without withdrawing the order. So it becomes very difficult and problematic. But if you think of what Cathy Barry had to do, along with her, particularly with her sister Elgin, with her mother Mary and with her brother Mick, the older members of the family, to have, have a, almost, almost a month in which they almost knew for certain their brother was liable, liable to be executed. And uh, they knew of his wish at a certain point that he shouldn't be legally defended. And it must have been just agonising for them. And it, in some ways it traumatised the family, I think, for decades to come. Let's just talk a little bit about uh, Kevin Barry himself, the man, the boy, which, whichever you want to describe him. Kevin Barry was born in Dublin in 1902, but raised in Carlow until the time that he went to secondary school. He went to Belvedere. Was nationalism, republicanism instilled into him at a very young age? I think it was. I, mean, I have to differ from my grandmother in this because she attaches... Kevin's, you know, what we might call his radicalisation nowadays, specifically to the influence of, of the housekeeper in Dublin, who was the daughter of an old Fenian. But I think if you look at Kevin's brother Mick, who spent almost all his life in Carlow, because he was the eldest son, the son of a widow, he was doing the farming from a very early age. He joins the IRA before Kevin. 
And it was very unusual, if you look at the history of who joins the IRA from 1916 on at the Irish Volunteers, for the eldest son of a widow, who's responsible for the farm and therefore for the entire well-being of the entire family with his six siblings beneath him, and that's a major commitment to make. And Mick made that commitment in 1917. He joined a company in Rathvilly, which, of course, they had no weapons, but at least they trained and, and they prepared for what they saw as the coming fight. And so I think it, uh, there's also some family letters bearing out this argument that it was at least as much in Carlo from a very young age as it was later in Dublin that Kevin developed quite advanced nationalist separatist views. And also his views... Uh, when he does come to Dublin and goes to secondary school, it's clear, because there's an awful lot of his schoolboys' essays and things have survived, it's clear that quite early on he's not simply anti-British, but he's very anti-colonial. He's conscious of issues of, of racial inequality. He's conscious of issues of the exploitation of Asia and Africa by Europe and so on. He's, he has a very wide uh, palette, if you like, of political views from a very early age. There are quite a few letters for somebody of such tender years. I mean, he was just short of 19 when he was executed. Quite a few letters survive. There's a lot of correspondence. You've seen a lot of correspondence. What kind of sense do you you get from him from those letters? There are a lot of letters. Uh, I didn't see as many as I would have liked because COVID-19 got in the way of my research towards the end, particularly in relation to Carlo. Uh, My cousin Schieffer has has touched on them in in her own work. The letter was a natural form of communication between people at the time. It was before mobile phones, it was before email or any of that. And so people were in the habit of writing letters very frequently. And this is good. I think Kevin writes, not only writes frequently, he writes very well. He has a sense of humour. He has a sense of, I think, of, of what's important in life. And I think that's reflected in his letters, not only his sort of heroic letters as he's awaiting the hangman, but in any of any of the letters that survive, there are flashes of personality, there's quirks, there's generally a joke or two, and so on. Now, some of his letters about girls are pretty juvenile. But the interesting thing about Kevin, I, I wish it were the same for all of us, is that from early on, he clearly could not just fancy girls and chat them up or whatever, but he could clearly talk to girls as people rather than simply as, as the other, as so many of us did, and perhaps some of us still do. He was very much at his ease with women. And I don't think it's simply because he had had older sisters or whatever. I think it's because uh, just his manner. He seems to be, in the letters towards the end, resigned to his fate and, in a sense, almost quite unsentimental about his fate. I, I think so. I, I think, though, the best account, if you ask me, of his, of his last days, in some ways, is that which is in a British file. It's a report passed on to the person who was trying to handle the thing from a sort of a British public relations angle in Dublin Castle. And it's in some ways terrific because it says the prisoner Barry in his last hours, quote, talk mainly sport. He thought, seemed to think Britain was some sort of vast industrial complex without any sort of pastoral qualities. And he makes a joke at the end. When it's obvious there's not going to be a reprieve. He, he jokes, quote, somewhat cynically that that only happens in the cinema, which means that er- as early as 1920, the cliche of, you know, the governor's call to, to the prison that a condemned man is, is to be uh, granted clemency, that that was part of the stock and trade of, of popular culture, which in itself is interesting. And the last sentence is, he went to his death with callous composure. And what more would you want from your enemies than to be, than your last minutes to be described in that way? And I think it, that acts as a kind of a, it's a relief and a counterweight to the accounts of the, of the chaplains of, of Kevin's last minutes, which naturally focus on his piety and his praying and so on. 
one of the difficulties with Kevin and why I wasn't inter interested in him really as a figure until Donald O'Donovan's book in 1989 by its nephew Donald, a very good book came out, which made Kevin for the first time appear human and humorous, uh, sometimes drinking too much and falling off his bike, uh, forever uh, chasing girls. Donald made Kevin sound like a real person and that was through his access to Kevin's letters. And at the end, Kevin clearly died bravely. So too, of course, a day later in, in the Punjab, completely unremarked at the time, did uh, Private James Daly uh, from Tyrrell's Palace, who didn't have the benefit, Kevin did, of, uh, you know, of a secondary education and of going to university, but who still wrote a very powerful last letter. What's your perspective on the incident that brought about the execution of Kevin Barry? That was the incident that took place, the ambush that took place on the 20th of September uh, 1920 that resulted in the deaths of three British soldiers. It comes across as a, a bit of a tragedy of errors, doesn't it? Well, I think the, the operation at Monk's Bakery was a complete dog's dinner. Uh, and I think that's reflected partly in, in the differing accounts by some of the people uh, who took part. The uh, commanding officer, uh, Seamus Kavanagh, gives one version of the Bureau of Military History. Another member of the party gives, in essence, in the key question of who fired a shot and why, gives a completely uh, contrary version. The aim was not to kill soldiers. The IRA hadn't, hadn't killed any soldiers in Dublin in 1920 by then. The aim was, was to capture their weapons. And Kevin, as one of the participants, was one of the more experienced members of that group, the aim of which was to disarm the soldiers and get their rifles. And it wasn't to, to fire any shots and it wasn't to kill anybody. And um, it was from start to finish, the operation went disastrously wrong. Uh, one of the volunteers fired a shot for whatever reason. And for that reason, it appears the soldiers picked up their weapons and returned fire. And it's uh, out of that and out of the fact that Kevin had been issued with a, a much desired weapon, a Mauser, but which tended to jam if the ammunition was a mixture from different batches. And so he fired, his gun then jammed, he then ducked onto the lorry to clear the jam, got up by his own account, fired again, killed a soldier, got down because the gun jammed again, and then his colleagues dispersed without any signal to withdraw being given. And there's a controversy as to whether there was meant to be a signal or not. And so Kevin was captured, was put in the lorry with the dead soldier and the other two mortally injured. It must have been ghastly uh, a ghastly moment for him and brought to the North Dublin Union where he was beaten up and threatened before being uh, put into like the military justice system. And of course, as has often been pointed out, one of the soldiers who died was actually younger, was only 15 years of age, younger than Kevin, and the other two were of a similar age, 19 and 20 years of age. Now, the, the family on principle decided that they were not going to appeal for a reprieve. They were asked, for example, to write a letter to the king uh, seeking a reprieve. They decided they weren't going to do that. But did they actually believe that an 18-year-old boy was going to be executed by the, uh, by the British authorities, by the Crown. Well, this is one of the problems. I mean, the Lord Chancellor of Ireland, uh, Sir James Campbell, who couldn't be called a raving nationalist, he, he had been involved in the hypothetical Ulster Provisional Government in, in 1913, but Campbell, whose own son had been killed in the war, argues that Kevin should be reprieved because he was only a gormless youth. Uh, he's enthralled to and in fear of uh, older men who made him do what he did and so on. And obviously the family didn't like that, that line of argument. Nor did anybody like the argument which Tim Healy, the barrister, suggested be adopted that of, of insanity. 
Um, but Kevin was at the end of his first year in university. He was nearly 19. I don't know if you know anybody at the end of their first year of university, but they wouldn't thank you for being called, you know, basically a minor or a boy or a girl as distinct from a young man or a young woman. I think uh, the extreme youth argument falls a bit flat because, uh, I mean, a few weeks afterwards, there was an IRA man of 16 killed in the Kilmichael ambush, Pat DC. There's, you know, soldiers are, are dying, um, had died in the Western Front and elsewhere, and were dying in Ireland, were soon to die in Ireland, younger than Kevin, and people were, were taking life and killing who, who were younger than Kevin. I don't think the youth argument, it was strong in the public eye, but I don't think that either the family or certainly Kevin himself would have wished to be, to be reprieved on grounds that he was a sort of a young fellow who didn't know his own head. He was much, he had been involved in a, a serious gunfight with a clergyman in, in Carlo. He'd threatened to use force in, in a raid on John Redmond's former home in Havana and so on. He wasn't a child, if you like, in arms at all. Now, there was a discussion recently on Liveland about the commemoration of Kevin Barry, stemming from an Irish Times article by Chris Fitzpatrick, who's a medical doctor. He made the point that Kevin Barry was a medical student and, uh, quote, even in war you expect medics to look after the wounded, not shoot people dead, unquote. What do you think, what's your reaction to that aspect of the commemoration of the execution of, of Kevin Barry? Well, look, I'm, I'm just thinking I'm about half a mile from where, uh, in April 1920, a medical student named Hugo McNeil, who had been in St. Mary's with Kevin for a year and that was then in UCD, he and another member of the squad stepped forward and, and shot a detective as the detective left his house on Pleasant Street off, off Camden Street. Medical students in 1920, whatever they might have done once they qualified, uh, saw themselves first and foremost, those who joined the IRA, as people fighting a legitimate war for their cause and for the freedom of their country. They certainly, if they joined the IRA, they did so in the knowledge that they, they had to be willing uh, to kill and, and to be killed. And that the medical students, as far as I can see, are disproportionately represented as compared with other UCD students in the Dublin IRA. And you see that on Bloody Sunday. A man I knew very well, the brilliant Colonel Dan Bryan, who became head of, head of military intelligence, was an outstanding intelligence officer. But he was, as we're in vertical, a medical student, but out on Bloody Sunday, and not in, he wasn't shooting anybody. He was doing surveillance on the streets. There's loads of people who qualify as doctors and dentists because they're all first meds and vets who were involved actually not only in, in being on the streets and up Bloody Sunday, but in killing people. And that's, that's what you do in war. And then the, their view was we're at war and this is what we do. He was the first Republican to be executed since Roger Casement in 1916 and his death occurred just a week after the death by hunger strike of Terence McSweeney. Is that part of the reason, in addition to his youth, that he became a symbol of Irish martyrdom? Or is it just the song? I think the song is very important. I think also the photographs are extraordinarily important. The first images that the family supplied in about, I think, about 29th or 30th of October, they start appearing in the press nationally and then internationally, are of Kevin in, in a sports jersey, a Belvedere sports jersey. Uh, the three ones where he's in hooped in black and white, the Belvedere hoops, he looks like a humorous, brave young sportsman, a healthy, healthy fella, you know, the implication of team games, all that kind of thing. He looks like a public schoolboy, if you like. The other point is that the photographs are all at least a year and a half old because they're taken in, in uh, 1917 and 1918, or perhaps one of them the very beginning of 1919. So, of course, he looks young in the photographs because he was, he was 16 and 17 when they were taken. So there is that. And uh, 
he also, I think he was a photogenic person and the photographs make him, you can see he's got an interesting face, quite a striking figure, quite a handsome boy in the photographs and quite a handsome young man by the time of his death. I think that, so the images are terribly important and have remained so. And so ironically, GAA, in some ways it's been said that the irony of naming it club after him when, when Kevin was a rugby player. But in fact, in one of the photographs, they just took the detail of his head and shoulders. But in fact, he's holding a hurley. He was a member of the Belvedere, experimental Belvedere hurling team, uh, which got absolutely hammered on their first outing, perhaps their only outing. Um, finally, to go back to your grandmother's witness statement, there's a raft of correspondence at the end where she has threatened legal action against Oscar Trainer, Oscar Trainer, who um, was to have been involved, who, who takes over the Dublin Brigade from Clancy and was to have been involved in a rescue attempt. And there is a monumental row in 1949. Just tell us a little bit about what happens there, because that's very much part of the curation, I think, of the memory of Kevin Barry. Yeah, my grandmother was very angry uh, by an article which uh, Oscar Trainer wrote, I think, in the Irish press, which appeared to suggest that the family had vetoed a final effort to rescue Kevin. And she called on, she threatened the Irish press and she threatened Trainer personally with legal action. What's interesting in, in the material which she submits in relation to this is that while the, the press clarified what Trainer meant, and Trainer did, but he didn't back down. And in his own pure military history statement, he he effectively says the same thing, which isn't what Kitby was accusing him of that the family had absolutely forbidden it. But he does say that that Mrs. Barry, Kevin's mother, who I learned about my great grandmother really for the for her first time, is a very interesting, uh, humorous, quiet but really strong and, and humane woman, that she objected to the idea of a rescue where inevitably people would be killed, not just in the prison, but probably uh, amongst the crowds waiting outside. And trainer, that remained Trainer's position, that the family had said, no, we can't do this because there'll be a bloodbath. Kitby had to, had, was, was slightly misreading, I think, what Trainer had said. But he didn't back down. Indeed, the Irish press refused to print the apology which had been framed by Mr. O'Hui, who was the solicitor for your grandmother at the time. The book is called Kevin Barry, An Irish Rebel in Life and Death. It's published by Marion Press. The author is Eunan O'Halpin. Eunan, many thanks for joining us this evening. Thank you very much, Miles.